Women Making Waves. So, Linda, for the second time this week, I actually got on my bike instead of actually getting in my car. That's not, that's not too bad, is it? For me? And is this for fitness? Is it to save money on fuel? Is it for the environment? Or is it all three? If I was going to be really honest, and I'd like to think I'm doing something for the planet, and I probably am subconsciously doing it, but I am doing it for saving money. That's what I'm doing it for, mm-hmm. because I, I drive past some of the petrol stations and I cannot believe... It's a shocker, isn't it? Yeah, the prices. And they're just going up. And I hear people are doing protests, boycotts of some of the... We won't mention particular brands, but they're boycotting some of the petrol stations because the prices are just silly, yeah. really silly. And I suppose that's probably why I've decided that I'm going to get on my bike a bit more. So maybe ways, Planet Fitness Cash. There you go. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. Well, that, that's that's really good. And I think yeah. we all need to do more for the planet, don't we? We keep hearing about yeah. things on the television and we keep hearing we're kind of running out of time. And that's yeah. really, really frightening, actually. But yeah, the bills are a huge thing. And I don't know about you, we're being really quite careful in the house as well, not to turn on the radiators all over the house. We're just really yeah. turning on the ones in the rooms that we're using. And in yeah. fact, in, in my office, because I've got screens that are heating up the place, I haven't even turned the radiator on yet. I'm just putting on a cardigan. And that's the other thing, isn't it? I've started to wear bed socks in bed and maybe that's, I should have done that a long time ago. So I'm actually getting a really good night's sleep. Oh, really? Oh, we've always had a cold bedroom. You know, I have mentioned this before. We have a bedroom that I think an Eskimo would feel at home in, quite honestly. (laughs) My husband, my husband doesn't. He always says, oh, you know, you you need you need a cold room to sleep in. And I suppose he's right to an extent. You know, it does make you sleep better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but there are extremes, you know, Susie. And I think we reach them sometimes. But anyway, that's another story. So. Exactly. Maybe I, I have a hot water bottle that I keep on ah, my feet. Ah, yeah, but in the middle of the ah. night, usually I kind of wake up sweltering because ah. the it seems to go right from the soles of your feet right the way up, you know, and then ah. you end up, you know, in a, a bit of a lather. So then I've got I find my way kicking, kicking the thing away as far as I can get it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That would probably keep me awake at night. I was having to sort of kick a water bottle. In fact, that would really irritate me. So I, I think oh, I'm oh. going to keep to my bed socks. Oh no, a hot water bottle. <laughs> Nothing can beat that, really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. but I think it's just getting used to as well. And I can't believe I'm actually saying this because 20 years ago we we moved into a house and it was the luxury of having radiators in your home. And now, of course. They're almost the forgotten part. You don't want to put them on because they are the ones that are going to create the heat, but also Mm. create a big bill. Mm -hmm. So now you think, well, if we don't have the radiators on, what else do we do? And like you just said, you put your socks on. Sometimes you wear a jumper. Mm -hmm. And actually, it is quite cosy, but I, I can't quite seem to get one of my children to get into that and I don't know what it is but they're not really possibly because they're not paying the bills maybe that's right that's exactly it <laughs> yes yes well he's paying part of it yeah mm. yeah mm. so they're all living in different places now and they're all having to think about how much you use how yeah. when you get up in the morning when when you decide to have your dinner early part of the time or late in the evening depending on how warm the house is or where that you have 
where do you eat in the house that's going to be warm? That's it's right. V- it's that's a very right. interesting time, isn't it? Oh, it is. My daughter's the same. You know, they've decided in their house that they're not using the oven very much. Right. And they're using a steamer for their vegetables and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things. And we we actually tend to use a, an air fryer. Ah, And it's yes. very good. And it's not... I always used to think an air fryer was an actual fryer. And yes, you can do chips and everything in it. But actually, there's no oil involved or anything like that. No. Mm. So it's just air. So you can actually heat up anything in it. And it's very quick. And I think it's quite cost efficient. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. And I know a friend has done just that and she's been trying to persuade me to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I shall be hot in pursuit of finding a second-hand air fryer somewhere. Mm. But it's a or good idea. cold in pursuit, perhaps. Yes. Um, unless you've got your bed yes. socks on at the time, yeah. <laughs> of course. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and on that note, we have... Some really quite interesting guests today, don't we, Linda? Indeed we do, indeed we do. We thought with COP27, very much in the news at the moment, that it would be great to make a feature of that, really. And uh, we've got some amazing people to talk to from the Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability Leadership. We've got Zoe Arden, and she's going to be talking about the role of female leaders in the climate sphere. Very, very interesting woman. She really is. And after that, we are joined by these women, these female leaders in the climate sphere. And two of them are here. And that's Liv Anderson, founder of BioXerox. That's a carbon neutral cement. And she'll be talking about the role of women in construction. And we also have Sushma Shankar from Deep Planet and they've been doing really interesting things using satellite imagery and all kinds of gadgets to help farmers and vineyards in particular but any farmers actually to help get the best yield from their crops. So we are really looking forward to talking to these three women. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, better known as COP27, takes place between Sunday the 6th of November and Friday the 18th of November. Last year it was in Glasgow, but this year it takes place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. We're going to be chatting to Zoe Arden about the importance of female leadership in the climate sphere. Thank you very much for joining us today, Zoe. Delighted to be with you. Now, you're a fellow at Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability Leadership, CIS, and your focus is on helping people to gain the skills to lead courageously and maximise their positive influence. I love the sound of that. As well as impacting and creating stories that drive change. That's fantastic. How many female leaders are scheduled, Zoe, to attend COP27? That is a very good question. And at the moment, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, But if we look at the last COP, which was in Glasgow in 2019 that you referred to, approximately 80% of the heads of delegations were men. Um, And while we... 80%, So in other words, 155 of the 196 heads of delegation were men. 
Not surprising, I guess, in some respects, but really disappointing, really disappointing. Why do you think that is, Zoe? Have you any thoughts on that? Well, firstly, we obviously have a a lack of women across many institutions, all institutions, not just climate talks. But specifically for the climate summits, I think it's got something to do with how we describe climate change. We often perceive climate as scientific problem and as a threat to security. And science and security have traditionally been male domains, um, which obviously is a very narrow definition because this is a societal problem. It's actually uh, the biggest challenge we face when we consider humanity's survival. So we need to take it out of those boxes and allow half the population the opportunity to contribute both their lived experience, because we know women are very much at the front line um, in terms of having to deal with the the impacts of climate change, and also have incredible expertise, creativity and innovation to contribute. And and what we do know is that they they contribute to, to better solutions and often more durable solutions. Zoe, you you say, well, Linda's just introduced you saying you're helping people gain skills to lead as well. But getting younger people to learn the skills is fantastic and really important. But when it comes to, say, moving on and women getting older and men, actually, we were talking about this earlier, actually, in another interview about women losing the confidence to move with their skills because they have other priorities as well. How how do you sustain that once you've taught people to for a skill? How do you sustain that? How do you keep that going? I don't know if it's your job or if you've seen that. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a great question. And actually, I don't talk so much about skills. What I talk about is how can we give women the confidence, the capability, the courage and the commitment to lead change? And in a way, that's software. You now, we've been talking about the hardware in terms of you know, patriarchal structures. But actually, when we think about how we're made up, and, and that's got a lot to do with education. It, it's the belief that we can contribute equally. It's the role models that we see. Who are the other women that are opening the doors to us? And it's the enabling environments that we create. You know, how do we make it possible for women to be able to juggle the multiple roles that they've got and really, really contribute? So no, they're not rushing around. So a little example, I, I was in Cambridge yesterday and I'm sure you know there's a wonderful woman who leads up Cambridge Zero and she arrived late at the dinner so that she could go trick-or-treating with her kids. Now that's absolutely fantastic. It's being able to prioritise your children and also make it a huge contribution, which she did, a really impressive contribution uh, to this dinner talking about the work of Cambridge Zero. So those are those are just some of the both the challenges and the enablers, I would say. Yeah, we've asked this question before, and I'm interested to hear what you think about quotas, you know, about um, prioritising women for uh, workforce. How do you feel about that? Yes, I think that that is a forcing mechanism that is valuable. So very simply, for example, with COP, why don't we mandate that the co-president of COP is a woman uh, and have two co-leaders rather than um, what has happened, which is in, in most instances, the president of COP is a man. Just taking it a step back, the, the COP that people talk about most was Paris 
where there was a woman who was hugely influential in that being an absolute standout successful cop and that was Christiana Figueres and she brought her incredible passion and resilience and charisma to that role we were lucky that she was an important voice at the table then but I but I think we have to get women at the table we have to create those role models so that that other people can see what the possibilities are and if quotas that is one of the ways we need to do that then I think we should. Well why do you think that we do have resistance still when it comes to um, equal amount of men and women in in leadership roles. I mean, there is resistance. I'm, I'm sure I'm right in saying there is resistance. And is it because there are other countries that are more male dominated that they want, that they can't relate to seeing a woman in leadership? I know that I'm stabbing at something here, but I just find that there's still resistance. And I find it incredibly hard to believe this. I think you're hitting an important point there, actually, which is that, you know, when we look at who is making the decisions at the moment, you know, often it is men and often older white men. And, you know, that creates a a very sort of narrow, often result, you know, result in terms of of solutions. And often there's a vested interest in maintaining those, those kinds of power dynamics. Now, there's some interesting studies on on conservative white males in in the US and Norway that have highlighted connections between climate change denialism patriarchal beliefs and right-wing nationalism so you know this this can get quite toxic and and this isn't to to damn all men of course it's to identify the huge opportunity that exists if we bring other voices to the table not just women but also more people from the global south who are the ones who are the very much on the, on the front line, the impacts of climate change, indigenous voices, young people. I mean, look at the impact that one young woman, Greta Thunberg, has had in this arena yeah. uh, just by talking her truth. It's absolutely phenomenal. So that's why we need all voices at the table. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the impact of climate change and women in particular, it does seem to be a fact that certainly in Africa and other places as well, I guess, women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. Yeah, absolutely. According to the UN, 80% of those impacted by climate change around the world are women. And you know that it poses enormous threats to you know, livelihoods, health, safety, security for women and girls around the world. There's also evidence, for example, that after you know, climate change crises, you know, there's increased violence towards women. But and on the positive side, there are also great examples of, of women leading solutions. So, for example, in the Ecuadorian Andes, indigenous women are using sustainable agriculture production and landscape management to restore the fragile ecosystem back to health after years of desertification and grazing, uh, which has left the land barren. So there's incredible wisdom that exists in these communities that actually can contribute enormously to to solutions. I think it's fascinating that you mentioned 80% the leadership was, was men. But 80% of women are adversely affected. Same number 
you know, it, it's incredible, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, another statistic for you, again, you and women, so the, these are the reputable statistics, 80% of the people displaced by climate change, because obviously climate change is, is a, a massive contributor to the, the huge migration issues we're seeing, seeing are women, but only 19% of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank board members are female. Um, so there's an incredible disparity between the women who and the people who are suffering on the front line from climate change and the numbers of women contributing to solutions and getting their voices heard. And, and just, a, just a word about this, it's not just about parity, it's about contributing to better more durable solutions. There's some really interesting studies that when there is more female representation in national parliaments, actually, there were more stringent climate change policies and lower carbon emissions. So there's lots of evidence that gender equality actually improves outcomes in societies, you know, in relation to both the environment and also peace building efforts. Yeah. So we're talking about women in leadership. Is there a sort of an area or a start where we can bring men into this discussion, men into supporting women? I always find sometimes that we, we concentrate on the women, and rightly so. But isn't it another aspect that we have to get men on board too? Because I think we're always fighting a lost cause if it's just all the women doing all the work. Yeah, no, that's that's a, a super question. And I completely agree. And let's acknowledge that there are many, many men on board. And also worth acknowledging that actually sort of toxic male cultures, men suffer in those cultures as well. They want to be part of inclusive cultures where everybody's voice can be heard and people feel safe to contribute solutions. So yes, there are lots of men who are championing women coming to the table and also being allies for women, supporting them, speaking out. I had a wonderful conversation with a woman the other day where she said that she will always call out, you know, when there's mansplaining going on in a meeting or women's voices are not being heard. And sometimes she has women say to her afterwards, oh, I noticed that was happening. She says, I'm not interested if you t tell me afterwards that you noticed it was happening. I need your voice at the time saying we're not listening to everyone at the table. And we need to. Now, we're facing huge global challenges and we need every voice at the table to be heard, um, to contribute to the solution and, and, and share their lived experience. And back to this COP27, we know that last time the, the leadership was 80% men. How can we make sure that we get more women up there and at that conference and every other conference as well. How do we do that? How do we go about that, Zoe? Well, I think it really starts with education. Um, I think it starts with having an expectation that women can make a massive contribution and finding ways for their voices to be heard, not always coming up with these, these very combative uh, ways of having conversations, which I, I don't think are always the best ways for everyone to thrive. Uh, we talked about the possibility of, you know, why don't we have a co-president who is a woman? There are a, a number of women involved in COP, but they tend there tends to be a higher representation of women in NGOs, for example, um, and, and citizen groups. And actually it's about how do we get more women in government positions 
in leadership positions in all aspects of society. And it absolutely starts with with education of women and girls, showing that we have expectations, changing the limiting beliefs and behaviours that actually we put on ourselves as a result of years and and generations of socialisation. Now, there are tremendous women leading change who we need to celebrate and make more visible. What's been a highlight for you in your role and your job? What have you seen that has really satisfied you that we, we talk about the most important things at the moment, but have, I'd like to get an insight into what one thing that's really excited you. Last year, I spent eight months creating a new course at CISL called Women Leading Change, Shaping Our Future. And we run that every quarter and we have participation of women around the globe. And what is so interesting is at the end of that eight week programme, so many of the women say that what they've realised, that it's not them that are broken, it's the system. And actually, when we really have our eyes open to the challenges and the barriers and also the opportunities to change, we can step into that with more confidence, courage, commitment um, and capability to be part of that change. So that's what really energises me. And I firmly believe that every single individual has the capability to lead, whether that's in their family, in their community, in their street. I find that hugely energising. And with regard to COP27, have you confidence that it will make a difference? Some of these conferences seem to be better than others. How do you feel about this one? I know it's not started yet. How do you feel? Well, I I think we need many routes to addressing climate change. And clearly COP is tremendously important. Now, I I would say it's not an option it has to be successful. There's so much that needs to happen and needs to happen at speed. So it's not really an option of it not being successful. And I think we can all do more. Interestingly, when I was creating the Women Leading Change course, we interviewed many women and I asked them, you know, what would they have said to their younger self? And what they inevitably said was, how can we be bigger, bolder, braver and ask for more? And, you know, I think that would be advice that we could take into, into COP as well. We don't have to be experts. I think perfect is the enemy of the good. And, and, and sometimes what holds people back is, you know, I'm not a client scientist. I, I don't understand the policy environment. And actually, we're all experiencing it in our day-to-day lives. Cost of food, having temperatures in the UK of 21 degrees in November, it's it's crazy. And, and those are obviously changes that we can live with. It's very different if you're in Africa, for example. So I think actually it starts with listening. It starts with asking questions. And it starts with sharing our own lived experience. We don't have to be experts. And particularly with women, you know, often it's, you know, we think we need to get the gold star and actually we need to continue going for the North Star, which is, you know, what do we need to achieve for the planet? That's a really good place to leave it. Thank you very much, Zoe Arden, for joining us on Women Making Waves. That's been totally fascinating. Thank you. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast. Brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness.
This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. We're now going to meet Liv Anderson. Liv is founder and CEO of BioZerox, a company founded in 2021 with a goal to decarbonize the construction industry. And they're working on producing carbon neutral cement. Liv is a passionate sustainability specialist who has led international construction projects in residential as well as commercial buildings, focusing on low-carbon developments. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Liv Anderson. Hi, thank you very much. Now, the construction industry has historically been a bastion of male domination. Do you see a growing number of women coming into the industry? Yeah, I guess over the last decades or so, we've seen more women coming into education in STEM-related subjects, including in the construction-related fields. So, I mean, all that's really positive. There's a lot of initiatives to mentor women wanting to enter these industries. We see a lot of, you know, industry groups supporting women coming into the industries. I think what's a sort of harder point, and that hasn't been addressed as much, is the retention of women in the industry yeah. and especially mm. in the times when you know people go on maternity leave yeah. and what's done to bring women back do you think there's an answer to that Liv it, it, can you see a way forward in that I, <laughs> I love that sigh thing. yes <laughs> what I think is we still see a lot of companies in the construction industry treating maternity and paternity leave very differently in a way that it really encouraged women to take this leave and to take it for longer. So I guess in a sense it's a bit of disproportionate encouragement there for women to take that time off. So are you saying that the paternity is not encouraged leave? So paternity is not an encouraged moment, but maternity they do encourage. Is that is that a discrepancy? I suppose putting this in, in the mindset of coming from uh, from Scandinavia where it's more or less equal between parents how much time you take on maternity versus paternity leave and it is encouraged for both parents to take leave and to basically with the perspective that no one should be kept out of industry and you know have that impeding the career development i guess in that sense there are companies out there in the construction industry and i'm sure in other industries as well who give the absolute minimum of two weeks paternity leave and that doesn't really open up opportunities for working mums to return earlier to work. But I also think when they do actually return, what are the opportunities? Will they be on the same career path as they were before? Will they still have the same opportunities? Will they be encouraged to climb the higher echelons? Mm. I have seen many examples when that isn't the case, uh, but I hope that is something that can change and really encourage working mums to to come back and to really be encouraged to keep a career if that's what they want. Yeah. Mm. I know in the IT industry, the fear, if you're off for a long time, is losing touch with the very, very fast-moving changes that, that go on in the industry. And I'm guessing it's probably similar in the construction industry. How do you feel working in such a male-dominated industry? Have you ever had any problems or struggled with that? <laughs> So I guess all my life I've been in very male-dominated industries. I was an ice hockey player for many years. I was an ice hockey referee for many years. And also working in construction, it is, it is heavily male-dominated. And I guess 
in a sense I've gotten a bit desensitized to it, which I guess isn't always a good thing, but it helps a lot having allies in this industry as well. And there are still views and there's still comments that, that comes in this industry that aren't appropriate. But I think it's really nice to see that people are becoming more aware of these issues and more people are calling them out. Mm. And I myself, when I hear comments, and it's not just, you know, gender related, it's also about other features such as racial or sexual orientation and to try and call them out when you see it it yeah. really helps the people that are affected yeah. I, I do find though Liv and it's 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 the same old situation same old issue when I was very young growing up and and wanting to have children and stopping work it's it well, I can't believe in this day and age that we're still dealing with this. I'd like to see more legislation on it, and, and that's what I find really hard. Does that affect all countries worldwide, do you think, Liv? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> gender gender discrimination isn't, isn't a localised problem. I do think that different countries have taken different approaches. Right. I don't think there's any one right answer to this question. I really think it really depends on, you know, cultural context, historic context and what you can really do within the frameworks mm. and the contexts that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We mentioned earlier that you are the founder and CEO of BioZeroc. What made you want to start BioZeroc to begin with? So I've been working in the construction industry for quite some time now and I was working mainly in sustainability consulting everything from net zero projects to embodied energy to operational energy to how you could align with net zero strategies globally. And despite being in a role when I had such huge impact on sustainability, I still felt like I wasn't doing enough to decarbonize this industry. So for example, if you're looking at the problem we're addressing at BioSero, which is concrete, it's responsible for 8% of the global carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. That's roughly four times the size of the whole aviation industry. And, you know, just a single building, like a, a public use building, can have the impact of over 400 people's lifetime emissions. Wow. That's just for yeah. the structures and the elements and the facades and the way the building runs. So it's huge. And in a sense, working in that field, I guess... I could help reduce it. I could help work with better materials. I could help use, you know, more efficient structures. But at the end of the day, it needed a fundamental reform if we are to align with the net zero targets that we have set. And your solution removes the need for cement in the process of manufacturing concrete. And and that's what makes it more environmentally friendly, I understand. Yeah, exactly. So cement is the most carbon intensive part of concrete. It's responsible for about 88% of the emissions of concrete. So huge, huge part of the impact. So when we found a way to actually remove that from the manufacturing process, it's a fundamental reform of the way that concrete is made. For the better, we would like to think. Is it being taken up? Are people very interested? I can imagine that this would be something that would be hugely exciting for the construction industry, this idea. Absolutely. We're still quite early stage. We've only been operational for about a year, but we're already having more interest than we can manage. Mm, that's great. And it also shows you know, that the industry is willing to start moving and start addressing these issues, which I think is super encouraging. And it's great 
that the construction industry recognizes the challenges it's facing and are looking for ways to address it. Mm. Yeah. How long did it take to research this whole idea of, of a substance that removes the solution in cement? How, how long did it take you to find this solution, Liv? So actually, the fundamental science that our process is built on, it has been researched for about 20 odd years. Right. It's, it's a similar process to what's used in self-healing concrete or soil stabilization, where you're basically using a bacteria that produces limestone to bind sand and aggregates together. Oh, wow. But whereas this has normally been used to sort of heal cracks in concrete or building very thin decorative tiles, our patent pending process is really focused on making these into larger elements that's more adapted for the construction industry at a commercially viable rate. Interesting. That is really interesting, mm. actually. That's really exciting. Now, we're talking on this programme about COP27 and the theme of decarbonising the construction industry is on the table and it's being addressed at the event. I take it that there is an appetite then in the construction industry to produce carbon neutral materials from what you've said. It does sound like something that people are really wanting to do. But it's not so much just about the appetite to produce it. I think the appetite to produce is more a response to the demand that's out there. And as I said, like the industry is recognizing that it has a huge challenge to align with the net zero targets that has been set. And we're already seeing regulatory movements mm. in the industry, such as in the Greater London Authority, you now have mandatory whole life carbon assessments for some of the projects. And there are talks about when an embodied carbon tax is going to come into play, which of course affects every project that's being undertaken. So we're sort of seeing this a bit nervousness, a bit, how are we going to solve this? Because there aren't mm. any products out there that you can build in a sort of realm of carbon neutrality as is. Some would say, why don't we just use wood? But at the end of the day, concrete is used everywhere around us. It's the pavements that we walk on. It's the structures in the buildings that we live. It's the tiles. It's the facades. It's bricks. It's everywhere around us and there is no material at this day and age but we can just replace all of these parts with yeah so there needs to be innovations to to address this and there's definitely a demand we do get a lot of requests and we do have a lot of people asking about this uh, i guess we just wish we could innovate even faster yeah i did wonder about that i wondered if it was client driven as well that when people are wanting buildings to be constructed if that's on their wish list that they're made as efficiently and um, environmentally friendly as possible i'm assuming that that's that's something high on the agenda these days absolutely that's on the agenda and as i said partly regulatory driven but also with companies that have their own sustainability targets and they want to show progress. But it's also part in the people who actually buy the buildings or rent the buildings. A lot of companies see it as a risk to rent or purchase a building that hasn't been made in a sustainable way. Because how is that going to align with their targets and their sustainability values? And do you think it's important that women are involved in the decisions made at global conferences such as COP27? Do you think that makes a difference? So from, from a personal standpoint, I think the most important part is that we are making commitments that are being followed and that we're taking action to address the climate change. And to be completely honest... I think whoever can make that happen, if it's a man, if it's a woman, whoever it is, 
is less important. But what I do feel is, of course, that the more diverse voices are heard, the better the solution is likely going to be and the more efficient we are going to be able to solve these problems. So, so yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's important that everyone gets their voices heard. We know that the best sort of innovations and solutions come from diverse groups and diverse teams. So, yeah, so yeah 100%. And will you be following the results of COP27 yourself? Will you be keeping an eye on what's going on there? <laughs> I think that even if I wouldn't want to follow them, I, I couldn't get away with it. No, like, of course, this is, this is my job. This is, this is what I'm passionate about. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I want to find a solution to, to the climate crisis that we're facing. So, of course, of course, I will be following what's happening and just hoping that, that it will also be taken action on and that we will actually work to find real solutions and and work on the commitments that we're setting. What will be the one defining point that you would hope for out of the COP27 from your point of view? What would you be wishing that you could bring back out and think, actually, that's that's a good move? Oh, that is a really good question. I think what I would really, really hope for are strong commitments and smart goals so that there is like measures, there's timelines, there are not just aspirations, but actual targets that people will follow and action on. That's so right. I'm glad you said that. Good luck with that. And I think it's a very realistic hope. I really do. Liv Anderson, thank you very, very much for joining us on Women Making Waves and giving us your views. Very, very exciting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sushma Shankar is the co-founder of Deep Planet. The goal of the company being to use machine learning for the benefit of the planet. They're building an artificial intelligence platform that uses satellite imagery and Internet of Things sensors to deliver insights into the growing of grapes for wine. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Sushma. Hello, Linda. Hello. <laughs> now, your first degree was in telecoms engineering. You then did a master's in computer engineering. Why did you want to study computer engineering? What drove that? I was always interested in science and maths as a child. And, you know, coming from an Indian family, you're, you know, somewhat already built to have the inclination to these subjects. Mm. While I didn't have too many female role models when I was growing up, I did have an older brother who picked up a lot of tinkering and, you know, playing with gadgets, etc. from him. And this is what got my fascination into it. Um, and so my fascination with ones and zeros and the fact that you could make or create something new imaginative by using commands this drew me to engineering and particularly to computers. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, actually, isn't it? So after you finished your master's, you worked for British Telecom, for BT, where you did business planning and product management. Did you find that area of the business to be quite male-dominated when you were there? Actually, no. Um, so these areas, in fact, had more women, I thought. Uh, in fact, one of my managing directors at that time was a woman. There were more women in senior positions compared to what I've seen on the technical side of um, businesses, right? And so previous to British Telecom, 
I have worked in many other technical roles, again, back in the US, but this was many years ago as well, where we did a lot of R&D to develop the world's first 4G call, you know, built out a commercial product and deployed it to millions of users. And now there are more girls getting into these streams. At that time, there weren't many. However, even then, there are fewer and fewer women, you know, growing to be more senior leadership roles or even ending up with sometimes no women in senior leadership roles. So there is a big gap between girls in younger, more junior roles and women who end up, you know, in, in more senior leadership roles. Mm, that's interesting. So, that you're is... saying, so, you, so you're saying that when you finished your master's and you worked for BT, there were a lot of women in the business planning and product management, but you're saying now it's depleted or I, I think so and these roles specifically in business planning and product management just more commercial there are more women however if you look at technical roles within the same industry the telecoms industry there are more women at junior positions but you know not many women in senior positions oh, so right. there's a gap in you know different parts of the business yeah, this seems to be a bit of a thing that's happening these days where women sometimes outnumber the men, actually, starting off when they come out of university, but just seem to kind of, you lose them as the career progression goes on and seniority. It's really odd. Why do you think that might be, Sushma? I think there is um, a lack of uh, role models. First of all, if we don't see women in those positions, we don't think we can achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's just the fact of trying to find this potential amongst women in you know more junior roles. The way we portray ourselves is different from how men would do it. You know, given the same experience or given the same level, it's just about how's the hiring process set up. How do we look at women versus how do we look at men? How do we identify potential in any of these candidates? They're different, right? So, um, I think these are some things that need to be refined, especially in corporates and businesses as we go. Mm, There does seem to be a sort of a a theme in some of the interviews that we have conducted that you're talking about. There is this this issue that's been going on for years and years that we don't know how to deal with women who have potential that obviously want to have maternity and come back. But it's still not solved, is it? I mean, is that quite frustrating for you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, now I'm in a position where... I would love to hire more women, right? Uh, We have about 40% of the company is women right now, but I am always on the lookout of how to find the right people um, with either the technical skills or the commercial skills and them being women. And it's it's just so hard to identify, you know, potential. I look at their CVs or I look at their LinkedIn profiles, not much pops out. Whereas you do the same thing for men and male candidates, and to think, oh, wow, this seems like a good fit. Maybe I should call him for an interview. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, when they actually come to the interview, um, it's hard to um, just get that connection immediately in terms of what they've done in their background or what their interests are and what what links that to to my business, right? And so they're less confident, you know, less forthcoming in a way, uh, whereas men i see like immediately they're so overconfident and come out saying you know i've done this 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 
which links well with what you're doing and I think I can bring this, right? And so there's much more confidence in what they're saying, even though they may not fit all the criteria, of, you know, 10 listed yeah. criteria on the uh, job profile. So it's yeah. just about uh, how do we approach female candidates versus male mm. candidates? Yeah, mm. it's really interesting. So women don't seem to be able to sell themselves as well as men can sell themselves. So you set up Deep Planet while you were still working with BT, actually. What, why, why did you do that? Well, um, Deep Planet came about even before I was at BT, in fact, but it was a product at the time. I was doing my MBA program at Oxford and there was a project which was looking at how to address environmental threat and solution to address global water scarcity. Along with uh, my co-founders, Natalia, another woman, and Dave, uh, we came together at the program, at the MBA program, and we decided to you know, apply our 15 to 20 years of industry experience. We came from different industries, different sectors uh, in AI, oil and gas, and telecoms, and we thought, let's use that expertise that we've gained to do something that's good for the planet. And, you know, all the while, it was a project for a long time. We were building a, you know, a proof of concept. Uh, it was hard. We, we had to be consistent, worked hard, worked two jobs with families, uh, but got it to a point where we could go in full time into the business. And that's how, you know, we kind of picked up pace with Deep Planet after BT. And for mm-hmm. the benefit of our listeners, can you explain what Deep Planet actually do? I know I gave a very, very brief headline earlier, but can you explain what, what you do? We help farmers to cope with the effects of climate change and we want to help reverse these changes. While all um, you know, crops and agriculture has been affected by climate change, our first market has been the wine industry and the wine being said to be the canary in the coal mine for climate change the microclimate and the weather conditions that adds flavor and basically what different varieties of uh, grapes and wine is known for is also the reason why the crop is so sensitive to adverse effects from climate change. And so we're working with wine growers to help them improve quality, to improve logistics by understanding when and where to harvest, and also to improve the sustainability of their crop by understanding you know, when a disease could potentially impact or how much fertilizer to apply, how many, you know, what's the nutrient level in the soil and the plants and how much carbon is present in the soil. So this can be improved over the long term. It's interesting you say about uh, vineyards. I mean, what was the reception when you approached vineyard owners initially? Were they very keen? Do they have their worries about it? Do they think things could change for the better if you came along and helped them? I think climate change has kind of brought the reality of things for everyone, right? And more so for farmers. Wine is one such case. Unfortunately for them, it's the wine growers are seeing the impact on the crop right now and it's become a profitability issue. And they want to they want to sustain and they I think they understand that you know, they basically have to use all the tools out there mm. if they have to survive. Um, and so that's really, you know, when we went to growers in, for example, in France or you know, in the UK actually has benefited from this. But if we spoke to uh, growers in France, they understand that, you know, all this heat, frost and adverse changes in weather, or extreme weather is hurting them so much that they just need to do something different from what they've been doing for generations. And so the adoption rates have been increasing um, significantly over time. Mm, that's great. Yeah, it is. And you're using lots of tech 
in order to help with this, like satellites and the Internet of Things. What kind of technology are you actually using out there in the fields and, and in, the, in the grapevines? We use satellite imagery predominantly from the European Space Agency. We use this data along with a lot of ground data, such as, you know, what was the yield? When did they harvest? What kind of agricultural practices did they apply in the last four or five years, along with any sensors that they have on the ground? And you mentioned Internet of Things. So basically, um, soil moisture sensors or weather stations and things like that. We integrate data from all these different sources to build machine learning or AI models and we've trained the model such that we're able to predict different outputs such as how much the farmer would uh, grow by the end of the season or what would the sugar levels be in the grapes or the acid levels be in the grapes, uh, what's the soil nutrients and what's the soil carbon and all of this kind of gives a whole picture to the farmer. It's all in one kind of a solution which where the farmer can look at what's happening to the crop and be able to take actions based on these insights on a weekly basis throughout the growing season. And you mentioned vineyards. Do you work with any other kind of farmers? Yeah. Our long-term goal is to use this technology for other crops. And our mission, as you said, is to harness AI for the benefit of the planet. And we want to extend the technology to aid sustainable development goals for climate action and food security. Um, And so we're already working with, for example, potato farmers here in the UK. Uh, We're working with pastures, rangelands, and we're helping them improve soil health by monitoring soil organic carbon, nutrients, and water conditions or irrigation. Um, So better understanding these factors not only helps farmers to have a better yield now, but also lower input costs such as fertilizer, irrigation, compost, which will help in further retention of nutrients and water in the soil, which is really good in the long term. About COP27, um, what are you hoping? Do you have contacts who are going to be there representing the fields that you work in? Do you think that you're going to be uh, getting some information about what's going on at COP27? Yeah, uh, food and agriculture, as we're just speaking, essential to meet these climate goals, right, set by the Paris Agreement. And the fact that food production is linked to 35% of greenhouse gas emissions is massive. And it's it's critical that it's on the agenda and it's great that you know people are promoting it. It's important to strengthen, in, in my point of view, to strengthen the ability of the farmers to adapt to climate change through new tools or reviving old practices and regenerative agriculture and help scale these nature-based solutions. So this basically means taking more time to find out what do farmers need? What Mm. are they doing now? How technology and policy reform can be better targeted to support them? It must be quite exciting, actually, that events like COP27 happen. You're so tightly involved in in that area. It must be quite a big thing for you, actually, the the COP27 event. It is. Um, We've also been fortunate to work with many organizations who are, you know, in a way representing us in um, in COP27, such as EIT Food, are also happy to be part of uh, CISL, um, you know, the European Space Agency, who have helped us develop this business and have been invaluable for us to grow. Yeah, so we have been fortunate to have the support of a number of organizations who are representing food and agriculture at COP27, such as EIT Food. We're also part of CISL, who've been extremely helpful in supporting and developing the business. Something that struck me, actually, when we were talking about farmers, Sushma, have you ever had an instance where you've 
you know, you've done all the work you've done and the farmers actually decided to change the crop that they're growing based on the data that you've given them? This is a question we often get asked, but in a different way, um, especially because of the changing you know, weather conditions with UK getting warmer, for example, people would like to understand what crops would grow better in these conditions in the next 20, 30 years. And so a lot of farmers come to us asking for this information just because of the fact that we have you know, a global database of weather conditions, soil conditions, and you know, a lot of ground crop data to say under what conditions do what crops grow well or even within wine what varieties grow well so this is a very interesting question a lot of people come to ask us for and um, this is something we can help with yes from a woman's perspective uh, you've done an incredible amount of work and you've done really really well for a younger person listening to this and obviously an activist a very young person who is really keen to improve the planet what would be your one sort of piece of advice if they they felt they felt a bit of an imposter syndrome and uh, and what would you say to them as women have always thought and it's becoming more and more apparent right that you just have to work harder sometimes i say it's twice as hard as you know a men would do it but <laughs> yeah uh, but um i think imposter syndrome is important like you just need to put yourself out there it works it doesn't work you just need to learn um and that's the way i've i've come about to where i am but also it's important to find your passion in terms of what you like doing it doesn't mm. necessarily have to be you know a green business or uh, impact driven cause but what do you really like doing in my case it was technology right and how can i use technology to do something that's good that could be alleviated sometimes we try to jump into finding the solution saying i want to do something impactful but i just don't know what to do mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of just taking small baby steps uh, put yourself out there you will learn a lot and eventually you know five years down the line you look back and you see you've connected so many dots and made so much progress and you're far away from where you thought you would be yeah, yeah. that's great so advice true. that so is true. really good yeah, yeah. Sushma Shanga, thank you very much for joining us today. That's been really fascinating. And, really uh, and, and good luck with Deep Planet. It, uh, <laughs> it sounds like it's doing fantastic work there. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a thank pleasure you. to be here. Lovely. Thank you. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks go to our guests, Zoe Arden, Liv Anderson and Sushma Shankar. We'd also like to thank Maeve Campbell from the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership for her help with this programme. We're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives. So please contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. 